One is a surprisingly relevant black and white comedy about deliberately managing money poorly. The other is pretty much the same, but with more baseball. Like, a lot more baseball. Brewster's Millions, they remade it. Gone are my blues, and gone are my tears. I've got good news to shout in your ears. The long lost dollar has come back to the fold. With silver you can turn your dreams to gold. We're in the money, we're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. We're in the money, the sky is sunny. Old man depression, you are through, you done us wrong. We never see headline about red line today. And when we see the land... Hi, welcome back to another episode of They Remade It. I'm your host, Stuart. And I'm your host, Jacob. Another just run-of-the-mill day, another run-of-the-mill episode. Nothing bad's going on at all. Nothing at all. Pretty lazy day, I must say, except for all the work that I did at my job where uh, that, I work. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> because as as hard as it is to believe, this is not exactly a lucrative venture we do on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I do it because I like it. Yeah. But uh, I saw <laughs> I, I saw a step. Now, we started this show like... Uh, two years ago because it was in 2018 so it, it's been over two years but yeah uh, we did start it in 2018 and i saw a, a statistic either today or yesterday where it was like uh thousand new podcasts have uh been created since the start of uh 2019 i guess Jesus. so at least 200,000, I would say, have started since we aired our first episode and started. Yeah. So, we are not even a drop in the bucket. <laughs> not even, but we're still doing it. There are, there are plenty of podcasts where I'll be actively looking for something new to listen to. And for every one good podcast on, like, 80s horror movies, there's, like, ten that don't exist anymore they tried it and they made it to like 10 episodes and then they gave up but so. by god we have kept it going yes we have <laughs> through trials and tribulations and pandemics and everything we have stuck it out yes we have uh we have not thrown it in from my mild beginnings of living in a basement sharing a house to now renting a pretty decent one bedroom having an actually stable relationship and employment hey we're doing pretty good now one of us just needs to get a kid and then we'll we'll be complete would you settle for a cat i i might get a cat Mm, yeah sure whatever yay anyway (laughs) (laughs) Our, our personal lives aside well okay to a degree i guess what you've been watching yeah, th- this is kind of personal, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's it's more personal than most other things in our lives. Mm. Uh, but uh, you're right about that, at least. Um, so I watched a couple of things during this last uh, little break that we had. Um, the first one I'm going to talk about is an absolute horror show that I decided to do. Uh, okay. A bit of an experience. Experiment, and I don't know why. I just thought of it out of the blue, out of nowhere, and I did it. Um, we have both been pretty vocal on the show and in our normal lives uh, that we don't like 
Family Guy at all. Oh God, uh, Jake, what did you do? So what I did is I I was like, well, I don't like it. I know that fans like say there's a seasonal drop off at some point, like there are for any shows. And there are probably episodes that people hate. So I was like, what are the most hated episodes of the show by the fan base? And I looked up a top 10 list and I went through 10 to 1 and watched them all. Um, pretty horrible. All yeah. around. Uh, <laughs> Jake, I'm pretty sure masochism is a diagnosable condition. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> well, when I, when I saw the Marquis de Sade, uh, when I watched wax work a couple weeks ago, I was like, you know what? That looks good, but to me. So, Fair. you know, that, that, that's where I got it from. Um, but anyways, you know, pretty horrible, not funny, bad writing, just, just things that like, I don't think that there's necessarily a humor barrier, but things that I don't even think that I would necessarily joke about just cause I don't find it funny. So it, it was hard to get into it. I have to say the number one, most hated Family Guy episode, according to the list that I found that fans apparently disliked to hell and back and it has the lowest rating on IMDb, I actually liked it. It was the oh. only one that I liked. Huh. Uh, okay, what was it, the what was the worst one you saw then? Oh, well, well, I'll let you describe that, but then tell me which one was the worst to you. So, um, this one, I the only reason I can think of that a bunch of fans hate it is because it's not as Family Guy as other episodes, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it actually has an interesting premise. So it's a fully animated, voice-acted, like, normal episode of Family Guy. But over it is, like, the main characters in the studio doing, like, a DVD commentary about this, this episode that never aired in its original form so it's not like it's, it's not like you saw it so it, it's interesting because they they went through all this trouble to fully animate and voice act a new episode of the show and then put dialogue over it like the characters are actors <laughs> and they're talking about this episode they recorded and i i think it's actually really fascinating it's that, it's a neat idea for an episode of a show yeah that's some fun meta humor <laughs> And I, I guess people hated it because all of the normal Family Guy jokes are in the background and you can barely hear them because they're covered up by a fake commentary. <laughs> That's the only reason I could think of that people don't like it. Man, that might but, be my favorite one ever then. It's like all the comedy is happening when I can't see or hear it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can still see it. Uh, well, yeah, but, but still. Yeah, you definitely. Uh, it's hard to hear it, I'll say, but you you still can, um, if you really listen for it. And I I really like that. Uh, and I'm not going to talk too much about it. But the one I hated the most, there's one where like Stewie thinks Brian's not paying enough attention to him, so he gets himself pregnant with. I don't don't yeah. please don't please don't finish that sentence. I do not. I That's I, why want, I stopped. There is I I don't need to know I, I i i have brain cells that are now dedicated to that jacob <laughs> you asked I, you asked me i know i know it's a i i have i have damned myself to my own self-burial but still uh so yeah that was the little test that i did i i think it's hilarious that uh the most hated episode of the show is like one of the only ones i actually liked uh it's one of the ones with an actual 
unique aspect to it, which is like if there's no more damning, like damning nail in a coffin of Family Guy, it's that the its worst episode is when it actually does something creative. Yeah, that's usually when people hate stuff is when you try to uh, uh, innovate a little bit. That's why uh, D- Doug Walker's uh, follow-up show failed, whatever the hell that was called. That's why Seth MacFarlane's you know act directing career was fucking bullshit. <laughs> you didn't like Ted too. I would have preferred to have cut off one of my toes. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting premise, I think. Yeah. Just, I would have rather watched a two-hour film of me watching myself when I had cut off my own toe. Hmm. I, I'll agree with you. I'm on board. Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, besides that shit show, uh, there were two films that I watched. Uh... One was Stay Tuned, I believe, a 1992 film. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, sort of, it, it actually kind of has similarities to Waxwork and Waxwork 2, which I talked about last time, in that uh, it, it has a lot of different settings and locales, because the whole premise is that John Ritter and whoever he's married to in the movie get sucked into a demonic television and they have to survive through a bunch of different channels for a certain period of time. Like you do. Uh, of course. Uh, and I kind of like it. It it's it has elements of black comedy, but I don't think it goes far enough with those elements to truly be a ba- black comedy. So it's, it's like a normal run-of-the-mill family comedy, and then every now and again something dark will happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I just don't think it goes far enough. Uh, and of course, Jeffrey Jones is in it, which makes anything uncomfortable anymore. Uh, <laughs> may he never have a career again. Right. Um, and Eugene Levy's in it, and he's like putting on a voice, and I thought that was strange. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm used to him just being American Pie Dad. So anytime I see him in anything else. Uh, it, it, it is weird to me. Um, and uh, there was something else about that, but I forget. Oh, I remember one segment of the movie is a cartoon. <laughs> and it's a fully animated and voice acted like short that they're trapped in. And it's animated by Chuck Jones. So okay. it it looks like a, a seven uh, a mid to late 1970s Looney Tunes cartoon. Uh, and I really like that. I thought that was uh, a nice touch. So, not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you have a very wide range of things you watch in our off time. I try. I sometimes I just see what's recommended to me, and I'm like, ah, I'll jump into it. What the hell? Um, uh, I barely watch shit. Speaking of what's recommended to me, I have one more thing. Uh, a horror film from 1995 uh, called Ice Cream Man, starring Ron Howard's brother, Clint Howard. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> I, I don't know how to reply to that. <laughs> it's about a mentally ill ice cream man that kills people. But it, of course. <laughs> Clint Howard's in it as like a deranged ice cream man, which is kind of interesting. 
uh, at least he's like trying. Uh, who's not trying though? Or there, there are like two cop characters, both played by you know actual people. Lee Majors the <laughs> second, which obviously is the son of the million dollar man himself, Lee Majors. And then the other one was Jan Michael Vincent, who could not give less of a shit about being in this movie, uh, which huh. I thought was funny. And I did not plan this. I swear I did not plan this. I just watched it because it showed up in my recommended. But David Warner shows up as uh, the father of one of the main children in the movie. Uh, and he's like a priest. But... Hmm. I, I just think it's strange because we, we covered him in the omen, obviously, but then last week I on a whim watched Waxwork without knowing he was in it, and he was in it. And then this past week I watched Ice Cream Man not knowing he was in it, and he's in it. And while I was watching the movie, I was thinking about it. I was like, after this episode we're doing on Brewster's Millions, the next episode, without giving it away, he's in it. <laughs> so <laughs> All David Warner all the time. Welcome to WarnerCast. Welcome to WarnerCast indeed. <laughs> uh, but, but that's sort of all I have been watching. Uh, what about you? Well, my friend, as far as things I've watched, it's been a whole lot of nothing. Uh, at least that I can remember. <laughs> um, I have, however, one, been playing the new game Ghost of Tsushima, which mm -hmm. does have some film credit to because there's actually some a fun bit at the beginning um when you first start up a new game it gives you the option to put it in something called kurosawa mode where it makes it puts everything in japanese dialogue with english subtitles obviously but then it also puts like an old school like old like seven samurais filter over the top so it looks like an old kurosawa film <laughs> and it's I played it for a little while. It is not unplayable like that, but still, it was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that it looks neat. Yeah. Um, so that's taking up my time at home. As far as time, you know, lis I've listened to a podcast at work and everything called The Magnus Archives, which is fairly popular, I think. I see it pop up online every now and again, but I was always like, okay, whatever. This is some other random podcast that people on Tumblr are obsessed with again. But then I started listening to it. It's a anthology of like horror stories, and it's honestly like I mentioned to to you before we started the show. But it's the first like actual horror that's unnerved me, and it's actually kind of like being kind of creepy to me. So I've absolutely loved it. Um, just like twenty minute episodes and all. I think I'm like halfway through it now, and I've been listening to it for like a week and a half, so it's pretty long. Um, but yeah, that's been my other waking moments. I've been a little bit more paranoid now because it's been such good writing, but otherwise pretty good. I highly, highly recommend. That's fantastic. Huh. Otherwise that's about it. I don't quite have the experiments that you have with your watching, you know, schedule. <laughs> I just love to just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks <laughs> and i mean the best way to do that unfortunately if you do it you have to regiment yourself and you'll subject yourself to a lot of stuff you probably won't want to watch so it's not for everybody but i do like to do lists where it's like okay i'm gonna go through all the disney films which i still have a ways to go i'm planning on finishing before the end of the year but then also it could be like i'm just gonna this 
actor I like. Like Zelda Rubenstein, I've been thinking about ever since I watched Under the Rainbow. I've been thinking about going through her filmography because she has like fifty film credits. <laughs> and I'm like, what if I just go through everything that she was in, even in a minor role, and just watch them? Yeah, and you have way more patience than me. <laughs> probably there. Yeah, there's not a lot of people that would do that unless it was for the purposes of like a show or something. I I like seeing strange things. <laughs> <laughs> we we have we have very differing personalities, but also like the same personality. Uh, they're different, but they don't clash in any way. I'll say we have a lot of uh, interests that intersect, but in completely different ways. It's like two different sports are being played at the same field. Yes, but we're using similar equipment. Yeah. So, and we're like playing at the same time, so it's like everyone's running into each other. Yeah, it's uh, it's it can be confusing, but it's it's worth it, I think. Yeah. So that being said, without yeah. an actual <laughs> without an actual segue, I I was hoping to get one, but I can't think of one. I mean, sports, I guess. Oh, yeah, sports, fine. We're, we're both playing different versions of baseball, like yeah. Richard Pryor does. <clears throat> Brewster's Millions. <laughs> it's Brewster's Millions this week. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to start off with Brewster's Millions 1945, directed by Alan Dwan, I want to say. Montague L. Brewster, played by Dennis O'Keefe, is a newly discharged American soldier back from fighting in Europe during World War II. He rushes to his home in New York City to marry his sweetheart, Peggy Gray, played by Helen Walker. However, he has to postpone the wedding after he learns of a strange windfall. His deceased uncle has left him $8 million, but he can inherit the money only if he can spend a million of it before his 30th birthday, October 13th, 1944, which is only two months away, and he is not allowed to keep any assets. The lawyer explains that Brewster's uncle hoped it would make him so sick of spending that the rest of the fortune would not be wasted. The conditions include not telling anyone what he's doing, to which Brewster reluctantly agrees. He sets up his own investment company, Brewster and & Company, and hires his wartime buddies Hacky Smith, played by Joe Sawyer, and Noppy Harrison, played by Herbert Rudley, as vice presidents, and Peggy, of course, as his private secretary. 
However, despite his best efforts, most of his schemes to lose money become profitable. Worse, Peggy becomes jealous of Brewster spending a great deal of time, first with socialite Barbara Drew, played by Gail Patrick, then later showgirl Trixie Summers, played by June Havoc, even though he is only using them to help squander the million. Smith and Harrison, thinking that Brewster has gone crazy, begin to thwart his schemes. At the same time, Peggy breaks up with Brewster, but her wise mother persuades her to go on a costly cruise with him and the cast of a failed play that he financed after Smith and Harrison closed it down. During the cruise, Smith and Harrison stage a rebellion by confining Brewster to his quarters and ordering Brewster's chartered yacht turned around to return to New York. When the yacht is disabled by a leftover U-boat mine, he escapes and goes to the bridge to order the captain to radio for help. Brewster learns that getting a tow from a passing Brazilian freighter to a nearby Florida port will cost him a huge salvage fee of $450,000. He becomes jubilant, realizing that the fee, the cost of the cruise, and the losses from the failed stage play will use up his million dollars. Several days later, as the deadline approaches, Brewster is back in New York at Peggy's house with the receipts of his spending sprees, thinking he has met his goal, only to have his friends present him with $40,000 that they've recovered from his failed ventures. Luckily, he is able to get rid of the money by paying the executor's fee, an old $10 debt, and $2 for a cab fare, just before time runs out. Having secured his inheritance, Brewster then takes Peggy out, saying that they have to go downtown to the nearest justice of the peace to get married right away. On the way out the door, he is confronted by a door-to-door salesman. The salesman tries to sell an item for two cents more than it costs in a store. For this reason, Brewster throws him out, showing that he has truly learned the importance of money. And now for Brewster's Millions 1985, directed by Walter Hill. Monty Brewster, Richard Pryor, is a minor league baseball pitcher with the Hackensack Bulls. He and his best friend Spike Nolan, the catcher for the Bulls and played by John Candy, are arrested after a post-game bar fight. A man offers to post their bail if they will come to New York City with him. At the Manhattan Law Office of Granville and Baxter, Brewster is told that his recently deceased great-uncle Rupert Horn, who he has never met before, has left him his entire $300 million fortune, but only if he can complete a challenge with several conditions. Brewster can choose to receive $1 million up front or attempt to inherit the whole estate by spending $30 million in 30 days. In the former case, the law firm becomes the executor of the state, collecting a fee for performing this service and dividing the remainder among several charities. In the latter case, similar rules apply to the 1945 film, just a little more specific. If he fails to spend the entire $30 million, he forfeits any remaining balance and inherits nothing. Brewster decides to take the $30 million challenge, and Angela Drake, a paralegal from the law firm played by Lynette McKee, is assigned to accompany him and keep track of his spending. Brewster, who has never earned more than $11,000 a year, rents an expensive hotel suite at the Plaza Hotel, hires personal staff on exorbitant salaries, and places bad gambling bets to squander his millions of dollars. However, Spike makes good investments, earning Brewster money. Realizing that he is making no headway, Brewster decides to run for mayor of New York City and throws most of his money at a protest campaign, urging a vote for none of the above. The two major candidates threaten to sue Brewster for his confrontational rhetoric, but they settle out of court for several million dollars. Brewster then hires the New York Yankees for a three-inning exhibition against the Bulls, with himself as the pitcher. He is forced to end his protest campaign when he learns that he is leading in the polls as a writing candidate. The job carries an annual salary of $60,000, which would be considered an asset under the terms of the will. Blowing his last $38,000 on a party after the game, Brewster becomes fed up with money and is heartbroken that Spike, Angela, and others around him do not understand why he's doing his actions. Remember, he is not allowed to tell anybody, as in the 1945 film. On the final day, he finds that the sycophantic treatment he received from his entourage is gone. Shunned by everyone he knows, Brewster makes his way to the law office. 
Having withdrawn from the election, he learns that the city voted none of the above, forcing another election in which none of the previous candidates are running. Warren Cox, a junior lawyer from the law firm and Angela's fiancé, played by Stephen Collins, had earlier been hired by Brewster to assist in redecorating Brewster's apartment near the beginning of the film. However, he has also been bribed by the firm to ensure that Brewster fails to spend the entire $30 million. So, moments before time expires, Cox hands Brewster some money previously thought to have been spent and informs him he is not broke. Brewster punches Cox, who threatens to sue and declines Brewster's offer of the money as compensation. Realizing that Brewster will need a lawyer, Brewster pays the money to Angela as a retainer. With the transaction completed and all of the money now gone, Brewster fulfills the terms of the will and inherits the entire $300 million. Hooray! Money! The cause of and the solution to all of life's problems. Depending on who you are. <laughs> of course, as, as always. <clears throat> and now, real quickly, I will do a full circle here. So we have a number of them this time around, uh, roughly eight, I believe. Uh, so we will go through and discuss if needed. So firstly, we have Dennis O'Keefe, who was Montague L. Monty Brewster in the 1945 Brewster's Millions, and before has been covered on this show, uncredited as Burke's party guest in 1937's A Star is Born, and uncredited as a nightclub patron in 1932's Scarface. As we've discussed before, a lot of the Extremely old movies, extras were just passed around studios, so it makes sense. Next, we have Eddie Rochester Anderson, who played Jackson in Brewster's Millions, 1945. He was also Max's butler James in What Price Hollywood, 1932, and he was the second cab driver in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which I knew I remembered him from somewhere, I just couldn't place it. Oh, yeah. Very familiar. Um, next, we have Neil Hamilton, who was Mr. Grant in the 1945 Brewster's Millions, and he was Lonnie Borden in 1932's What Price Hollywood. Again, old films. Hmm. And with that, we move on to 1985's Brewster, Brewster's Millions. That's going to be For, difficult to say all the way throughout. Uh, definitely. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe we'll come up with some shortening for it. In Brews. <laughs> I'm good with that. Uh, so the first one we have is Jerry Orbach, who was Charlie Pegler in Brewster's Millions, and he was the voice of Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast, 1991. Oh. Huh. Yes. Anyway, uh, <laughs> John Candy was Spike Nolan, and he was also Wink Wilkinson in 1986 Little Shop of Horrors. Yep, that, that one I remembered at least. And speaking of Little Shop of Horrors, we have Rick Moranis, who had a small part as Morty King in Brewster's Millions. He was Lewis Tully in 1984 Ghostbusters, and he was Seymour Krellborn in Little Shop of Horrors. Just gets around, doesn't he? He used to. <laughs> yeah, and he's about to again. That's true. New Ghostbusters. Let's go. And new um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, that's right. You told you told me about that last time. I forgot. Oh, we're I'm excited for some reason. <laughs> the end is never the end is never the end is never the end. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so next we have Peter Jason, who was Chuck Fleming in Brewster's Millions, and he was the soccer coach in 1984's The Karate Kid. 
I have to say, I think this is the first Karate Kid mention in Full Circle in probably over a year. <laughs> I keep forgetting we did that one. Yeah. It's weird to think back. It's weird to think back on like, oh, yeah, we did that movie, didn't we? <laughs> wow, look at the ones that we did. <laughs> <laughs> look how far we've come. And lastly, saving the biggest name, well, yeah, arguably the biggest name for last, Richard Pryor was Montgomery Brewster in Brewster's Millions, and he was the balloon vendor in the 1979 The Muppet Movie, which, of course, ended oh. up taking Gonzo into the stratosphere. Oh, yeah. And that's your lot. Well, a whole, a whole bunch of people. Definitely. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I can hear the strain in your voice. <laughs> Um, I'll mask it. Okay, so it's and, and I've, I've mentioned it before. Like, like I jokingly said, like the choices you tend to pick tend to be a bit more out there. Things I wouldn't expect. However, this time around, you've somehow found a second case of two wacky, like a remake of wacky, you know, hijinks involving a monetary prize in the form of this and Mad 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 World. <laughs> And I rat like rays, them. obviously. I just, I was, I was just, I was watching through the forty-five version, and once I was done with that, I kind of realized it was like, wait a minute, this whole setup seems vaguely familiar. <laughs> and then, and hey, even, what do you know? Yeah, it's just, it's like, I'm surprised, I'm surprised to have seen two of those. It's like and, I'm reminded, it's like, what's the? It's like a line from Phineas and Ferb. It's like Doofenshmirtz or something. It says, if I had a nickel for every time such another thing happened, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it is surprising it happened twice. <laughs> Line. And hey, both episodes had Eddie Anderson, as we just covered. So oh, yeah. maybe there's something to it. Maybe he brings that special magic. Of people losing their minds over making money. Yes. Uh, I, I also should mention, before you go more into any of your thoughts, I didn't mention it during uh, the uh, the synopsis because he's kind of just, he's inconsequential to the plot. He does some things, but they don't really matter. Uh, but Eddie Anderson was sort of the uh, butler of the Brewster estate in the 1945 version. Uh, yeah. And he is kept on at Brewster and Company doing various odd jobs for Brewster in providing, an attempt to waste the money. Providing color commentary. Yes, exactly. I mean, no, I mean, not like that. Uh, I'm so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not intentional there. Didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a phrase we, we understand. Uh, we should mention that the character is black. Like, in case that weren't clear, um, Eddie Anderson himself is black, not just the character. I'm going to stop taking myself a hole. <laughs> and, I mean... Uh, just going to move that one right along. The 1945 film, I mean, he's a butler working for the estate, but it's not a, it's not horrible a horrible portrayal in that regard. Oh, no. Um, Although I will say that this is just a trivia bit on the 45 one and i will read it verbatim <clears throat> upon its original release the film was banned in memphis tennessee where officials found eddie rochester anderson's servant character had quote too familiar a way about him unquote and that the movie overall depicted quote too much social equality and racial mixture unquote oh my yeah good yeah stay classy memphis <laughs> that's a good trivia thank you for sharing 
Yeah. So. Um, but that being said, yeah, I mean, again, he's a butler, but at least there's some equality there. He gets in good lines. He's not too ter- stereotypical, which is nice. And I think Eddie Anderson's a good actor. Oh, he's um, fantastic. To that end, I think the 1945 version is pretty has pretty horrible portrayals for every single woman uh, involved. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> it's it really is pretty firmly in either overly annoying fiance wife character annoying mother-in-law sort of well maybe not annoying the mother-in-law actually was actually pretty cool um at least in most bits but then otherwise the showgirls and all yeah and there's one it, it happens really early in the movie because it plays into the plot uh but the fact that he's gonna get married and he can't get married because according to the law firm if he marries her, she would be an asset, which is against the rules of the competition. And I, I heard that. And I'm like, oh, this is from the 40s, isn't it? Yeah. It's like that marriage equity laws were still a little in the, a little in the dark ages. Yes. Uh, all and around actually, unfortunate. But we've grown, I like to think. A little, yeah. <laughs> I mean, lots of people would work very hard to make sure some of those laws came back. But eh. <laughs> moving right along. <laughs> Yeah, let's just uh, sit, sit getting, on that for it's a getting, getting real, real in here. Anyway, the, the the 85 version sure does love baseball. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that's about. I'm kind of... <laughs> you don't happen to have any trivia on that, do you? <laughs> uh, I mean, I can look. You don't have to uh, if you don't have it already. It's just that was a curious decision. It doesn't, it doesn't get in the way of the movie too much. It's sort of another avenue for him to waste money. But it kind of, it, he wastes his money, he spends his money in an attempt to blow it on the game. Which is like, you'll, we'll set this up and it'll be between the Yankees and us. And then, I don't know, sort of just a game happens for a bit. And it affects his character, which in turn affects, you know, I'm done with spending all this money, blah, blah, blah. So it, it does provide character moments that relate back to the actual film itself. Right. But But for... I don't know, a good f- 10 minutes of the movie is just hijinks playing baseball, and it doesn't have to do much with the movie at all. Outside I... of the fact that they start out as a pitcher and a catcher on this Bulls team. Yeah, like, and I mentioned it before we started, but I'm almost certain it has something to do with, like, I think baseball was just super popular at the time and also super political, like you had mentioned. Like, you'd be like... If, you know, a movie were set in the middle of football with a football gag nowadays, because, like, you know, that's plenty. That's the more controversial American sport these days, it feels like. Yeah, and I think the 90s was probably hockey. Probably. So, I mean, hey, it's, you know, now that I think about it, uh, this is kind of a tangent, but I'm kind of thinking about it. A lot of baseball movies in the 80s, kind of going into the 90s with Angels in the Outfield, um... Then 90s, you know, like Mighty Ducks and whatnot. And then obviously the... Um, I've forgotten the other one. I'll, I'll move hey, on. Goon, unless that was early 2000s. Yeah. And then as you go into the 2000s, you get a lot of football ones. I mean, there's like um, We Are the Titans, um, that one Adam Sandler comedy. Oh, yeah. Longest Yard, Remember the Titans. Yeah. Remember um, the Titans. Sorry. Um, that a couple one other ones. with Sandra Bullock. Oh, uh uh blindside yeah yeah that one 
So, yeah, it's we're actually able to kind of see the progression of that. You got, there's some truth to that. You got some points made there. Yeah. And I can't remember the name of the hockey movie, but it's the mo- hockey movie in the 90s where it's like, it's during, it's like the America versus Russia game. Oh, Miracle? That's like, Miracle, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like thinking about, it, yeah, we, it's actually been going along. I wonder what the next, the next trend's going to be. I don't know. I do like that we know a surprising number of sports films, though. I'm, I'm surprised at that, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be real. I did not expect myself to get through, like, literally six. <laughs> oh, there, there, again, there's your lot. Yeah. Um, uh, but, have we but, done a sports movie? Hmm. I don't know if there's... I mean, with the, with the changing of the times, it'd be kind of difficult for there to be a remake of one. I'll I'll have to look into that. That's uh, that's interesting. Even if it's something like uh, the Babe Ruth story or something. Yeah. Um. But I have I have sidelined this podcast enough. I will say. <laughs> so <laughs> we will back to the bring, topic at hand. We will bring it back to the topic at hand: kicking and screaming. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you're probably right. That that probably played a big deal into it. Besides, I guess fleshing his character out a little bit, because I guess technically. Uh, the Brewster in the 1945 one did have a defined past as well and that he was in the war. Uh, and that was sort of why he didn't really have any assets or money to speak of either. Yeah. Whereas in Richard Pryor's case, it's because he, he's on this failing nothing minor league baseball team. Um, but they don't, they don't play into it in the 1945 one as much. It's not like, uh, Oh, I'm going to spend a lot of money on a a civil war reenactment or something. I don't know what it would be. Yeah, like uh, I was gonna, I was gonna say, for all intents and purposes, the Brewster in the '45 version was a pretty stand-up guy. <laughs> like, it, like him coming back and everything. You know, he seemed very much like the doughy-eyed, you know, soldier boy coming back to his wife. Yada yada yada. Um, but for all that it showed about him, I really didn't get the impression that he'd be this kind of maniac about this whole situation. I mean, like, it's just seeing how he, like, reacted to it and how he's acted kind of like a scumbag. It was kind of, maybe not scumbag, but certainly not great. Um, seeing how he reacted to all of it, I just, it was hard to believe the Brewster and the, you know, 85 version, definitely a bit more believable, just, you know, borderline bum, just kind of, like, trying to skirt by with what he's got. It's like, okay, yeah, no, sure, I can see that a bit more believable. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know... And also, for God's sake, the family in the 1945, they're not exactly poor off. <laughs> like, Oh, no, definitely we see not. Them, we see them coming back. They're living in, like, a townhome in, like, New York, I think. Or Chicago, I can't remember. Um, they're living in a townhome. They have a servant. They're, like, in this grandiose house with like multiple bedrooms and all like for all his like his war buddies to come back with him to have their own rooms and like they're having like cocktails and all they're all dressed up in suits as this glorious apartment it's like what kind of money did these guys have that seven million is a whole lot to like or an extra eight million rather is a whole lot more to go crazy over yeah i i don't yeah, I'm, I don't understand that bit. I guess maybe it's sort of... I mean, that's a lot of money anyways, but right. I guess more so it's him? 
or it's his. Maybe that's the line of thinking. He doesn't want to mooch off of that family or his mother-in-law. That's a good point. I guess uh, plus, that might play into some of it. Plus, it it did you know it did kind of get to me a bit more when I I saw in the trivia one million dollars at nineteen forty-five by modern standards would be about fourteen million. So it's like okay, yeah. <laughs> That's, mm. And then uh, multiply that by eight. So, yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of money. And I mean, if if we're going off 1985 movies rules, which has like a wimp, a wimp clause where you can just take the million, I think I'd take the million. I I don't have a mind for any of that other stuff. I just yeah, it's, I'm not it, greedy. Yeah, like I don't know how I'd manage that sort of stuff. Like, in the, in the fact that you'd have to have nothing by the end of it, which is like, okay, fucking, can't. That's. <laughs> yeah, that's just, it, it, it boggles the mind to think about it. It's like, whereas a million, it's like, okay, I can take this, I can pay off all my debt, and I can nearly live off the interest if I just put it in a couple decent investments and I'm fine. <laughs> right. And I, oh, that's the thing that kind of boggles the mind, too, is because there were points during the film, like, the 1985 one, I mean, where he buys things that I feel like would be considered assets, but they don't come into play. Like, he rent, he rents a bunch of furniture and he rents the rooms, so at the end of the 30-day period, that stuff goes away, so it doesn't count as an asset. But did I miss something in the film when, because he buys the team, the baseball team to manage it, does he lose it? Did he give it away? I thought he Is just, like... legal? I thought he just, like, rented the team or something. Like, he bought out, like, some time from them. I guess that could have counted, too. I just don't... Uh, unle- of course, unless I missed it, which there's a lot of fast-paced stuff going on in both of these movies, but uh, unless I missed it, I don't remember him saying that he was running out the team. I-, I feel like, especially at the beginning, he made it sound like he was buying the team to get them a new stadium. Right. And then maybe he think... sold the team and then used that money for the party. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it kind of did go at a breakneck pace. I think, like, the most I can think of is that if it's a if it's like a, a something you buy, like if you had bought, like, furniture and clothing, that sort of thing, it has to genuinely be, like, a valuable asset that you can, that's basically just, like, investing in gold. It's like, if you buy, like, clothing or a car or something, that depreciates in value the moment you take it out of the store. And so... If it's something like solid, like he bought that super expensive stamp and all that sort of things, like that would be considered a rare commodity that you could barter with, essentially. Which, by by the way, I think that's probably my favorite bit in the movie. Yeah, that was that he buys a stamp and then mails it. Yeah, which I think that was an actual thing, like the the inverted um, the inverted Jenny. Oh, it 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 definitely is, Uh, and I only remember because there's. uh, a Simpsons episode from the 90s where they're all at like a flea market and Homer's going through a box at some lady's stall. I don't remember who the woman was. But <laughs> it's it, the joke is that he keeps finding rare items and then throwing them aside. And one of them is a bunch of upside down airplane stamps. <laughs> I, I only know it because of, you know, because I was just a Wright Brothers fan. <laughs> ah, of course. Because like, you're you know. some Wright, Wright Brothers stan. I mean, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just like airplanes, and plus, we just we learned a lot of history of it because I, I was, you know, I lived in North Carolina in my youth, so like, they keep crediting them being the first flight since you know the first flight was actually in, at Kitty Hawk, 
even though the Wright brothers were from Ohio. So it's like, eh, I don't know if we can really credit this that much, but there's not much else you could really claim about North Carolina. Far be it from me to get in the way of state pride. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck else is there in North Carolina? And I'm allowed to say that. I was born there. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been. It's just, uh, just cheer wine and racism. That's fairly common, I think. I mean, um, not, not the cheer wine. Well, yes, of course. <laughs> uh, 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 back to what you were saying, though. Yeah. That that would make sense. The Like, you purchase clothes, and then it loses its value. That's why you don't normally... Unless it doesn't fit or something, you don't sell it back to the store. It goes to a Goodwill or a garage sale or something. But that doesn't, for some reason, the rich uncle doesn't even want him to have that. He can only have the clothes on his back. It's like, I guess I guess he, he thinks those shoes are still pretty valuable, even <laughs> after Richard Pryor's been wearing them. Right. I think it's the idea that if it's something you actively use... Like it's a like it's a tool or something like clothing and like vehicles and that sort of thing versus like artwork or you know precious metals, it's like then like yeah of course that's going to depreciate in value. It's it's quality lowers. Right, and and that makes it tricky too because as per the rules, like I said in the synopsis, they're fairly similar to the forty five one, but they're a lot more complicated probably because. The forty five one was based on a screenplay that was based on a, a play play. That may have been based on a book. There were, like, they had 80 plus years up to the Richard Pryor film of people probably like, you remember Rooster's Millions? I would have done this and this and this. And they're like, okay, that's against the rules. Yeah. So he, he, he like, says, you probably just buy a bunch of rare paintings and then burn them for firewood. You can't destroy anything with inherent value, which I would argue, what does inherent value mean? Um, from, from a legal standpoint, I think it means something very specific. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Which I guess is the whole point of the game. But then what would stop him from buying a bunch of clothes and then burning all of the clothes or throwing them out of a plane or something? Do those have inherent value? If they don't, why can't he keep them? It's just a big mess that maybe someone more intelligent than me could answer. And I feel like there's plenty plenty of legal yahoos have tossed this around any way better than we ever could have. Let's go to the Legal Eagle YouTube channel and see what he has to say. Yeah. But, like, going from that to kind of move away from the legal jargon, I was going to say, you know, you brought up the, the rich uncle in the 85 version. I, it just kind of got me thinking about just the the acting chops on, not acting chops, but just the how everyone acted specifically in both movies. And this is one of those rare cases where I'd always go on about, like, older movies, they seem like they have a bit more natural rapport and everything. But I'm realizing now, in comedies, it's kind of the other way around. Like, they feel very stilted in a lot of cases in the 45 version, where it's, you know, they're talking about it's it's very hard to tell when something's specifically meant to be a joke. Because everything's played very straight in a lot of ways. And just how we present comedy nowadays is a bit more blatant than how people may have presented comedy back then just like you know when he's waiting on the phone like about looking he's about to faint just from being told he he might even just have one million dollars in the 45 version it just seemed kind of like is he okay versus like oh he's genuinely just he's genuinely like having a freak out moment haha but then the whole scene in the 85 version 
where it actually had the video of the rich uncle talking to Brewster. I thought that that was probably my favorite scene. It's just I, I thought that guy was hilarious and just how they were interacting with each other and how Brewster seemed to like reply to the video and their video replied back. That's just, a good bit. That's yeah, that's a good. That I've always loved. I've loved that bit. It's like, how am I supposed to do that by doing this? Stupid. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, and and what's best is that I say this on the show all the time: is that what really hurts comedy is if you don't trust. I'll say this as a general rule, and I'm not. I'm definitely not the one that invented it. The worst thing in comedy is to have a lack of trust in your audience. Yeah. If you don't think that they can get the joke based on the joke itself and you have to explain it, then it's not well written. And in a poorly written movie, they would have, they would have had Richard Pryor say something and then uh, his rich uncle responds to him. And then it cuts back to Richard Pryor doing a double take or it cuts to him, like turning around to the man in the seat behind him being like, did you hear that? Or did he just say that or something like that? But instead, yeah. it, it keeps going. It's naturally funny. The audience yeah. themselves are like, did that just happen? Or that's crazy. But the people in the movie don't care. Yeah. I, and I think and you, I think you just kind of put it perfectly the way I was thinking of it. The 85 one is naturally funny in a lot of ways. And I think that's just the comedy chops and everyone on display is pretty astounding. I mean, you know, Rick Moranis, John Candy, uh, fucking the main guy whose name I have immediately forgotten. Um Richard, Richard Pryor. Pryor, yeah, thank you. Mm. Um, they just, they just, they ooze a certain charismatic char- charisma about them that just makes comedy pretty easy. Versus just again, everyone in the forty-five one, it just feels like they should all be doing different movies. Like they should, they all seem better suited. Like PSA is about the dangers of smoking and the dangers of wealth, whereas this, instead of being in this like comedy film, <laughs> I mean, just John Candy by himself. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen him in a role that I hated, even Nothing But Trouble, which is a horrible piece of shit, uh, <laughs> with Dan Aykroyd overacting with millions of prosthetics and Chevy Chase being like a lump of wood. John Can- Candy makes that film tolerable, mm-hmm. I would say. I, I just, I, I think he's funny. Yeah. I just, I definitely... I somehow found the situations in the 85 one more believable purely because of just how genuine it felt like everyone's reactions to this odd world were, were just like how everyone just kind of rolled with the punches in a lot of ways. And then just the 45 one just felt kind of dry. It's like dry is good for certain comedies, but in this case, it's a very goofball comedy. It's not like a very serious comedy, you know, it's like yeah. the whole, the whole premise is ridiculous yeah i mean that's the point and it's supposed to be madcap and they have the built-in rule that the main character in both cases is not allowed to tell anyone else why he's doing what he's doing so that naturally creates tension and sort of an antagonistic way that the characters interact uh which which is supposed to build build up the comedy uh and there are funny moments in the 45 one, but I don't think it's as consistent. Uh, I, I think the most comedy that I can think of, obviously it comes from Eddie Anderson just doing yeah. what his role was made for. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like just his earlier films where he, like earlier part of the film where he was talking about. It's like I heard you were in the Navy, and then he like talks about like you know like all the like, just I can't even remember the exact wording he put around about like fighting the Japanese and everything. But just hearing that, I was like, <laughs> it's just like a genuine just like a little chuckle at the situation. He's just very much again. He, he's a man that oozes charisma, so it makes it very easy. Yeah, he he's great. You know what? I was talking about it at the top of the show. That Zelda Rubenstein thing, I might look up an Eddie Anderson filmography, see what he'll always been in, and sort of comb through it because that that might be nice. I yeah. genuinely enjoyed him. Yeah, you know, one of the highlights of the film, honestly. And uh, I, I, like I was saying, most of the comedy comes from him, and then because the character of Brewster is the one that's allowed to be the most zany and madcap because he's the only one that of the main cast of characters that really knows what's going on, he eventually, due to how manic he is, he gets moments to be funny yeah. in the character. It's just in the 45 one, it's fewer and farther between. But th- there is one that I can think of that really got a laugh out of me. I believe they're on the ship, and he runs into uh, one of the uh, room's top deck in order to get uh, the person manning the radio in order to get his attention. And he starts talking to him. And in the middle of him talking to him, the man with the radio, he has headsets on, a headset on. He takes it off, goes, what? And he just instantly stops. He goes, sorry. And then restarts his whole dialogue. And there's no <laughs> yeah. reaction to it. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to think of what that what that kind of joke is. Just the genuine, that genuine moment of, of uh, go on. Anyway, <laughs> I've seen that in a few things, mostly cartoons, where it's like, you know, they're having some big dramatic situation, and it's like they're in the middle of a street, and they're like, oh, car, and they move out of the way. Okay, yeah, and yeah. they go back to fighting. <laughs> Lots of instances of that, and it's a good way, like, that's something that might naturally happen, especially if someone doesn't want to participate in the conversation. Yeah. Because there's, actually, I'm just remembering, I think there's a fairly similar moment earlier in the film where uh, I don't remember which one, either Hacky or Noppy, one of his war buddies that works for him, is first coming into his office to complain about something that he's uh, doing wrong with his money. And in the middle of this tirade he's going off of, Brewster picks up like a cigar or something and hands it to him, and he just stops his tirade. He goes, uh, uh, no, thank you. And then starts <laughs> back up again. And th- those moments are enjoyable. Yeah. It's it, it, like when it, it's... It's moments like that, like they actually do take dry humor into the situation and actually creates a nicer situation. Like I, I'm trying to think of how the whole the movie as a whole could have been made funnier in that kind of more that very much 1940s style. But I really can't think of it. Just the premise alone, it seems like they were a few years ahead of their time. Like this definitely feels like more of a stage play worthy plot than of a you know, movie film plot. Like it definitely seems like there'd be a lot of kind of slapstick comedy that could kind of go into it. Like, especially with a stage play. Right. Which it was. Right. Uh, right. And that's sort of what it was based on. And, and back to another earlier point that you were making where it, a lot of them were sort of that back then comedy was more stilted Mm -hmm. and that sort of vein. I, I have to wonder if that's because a lot of comedy was adapted either from plays, which, not just comedies, but dramas, action, whatever, yeah. te- tend to be adapted from plays. Uh, but also a lot of vaudeville acts. And you have to, you know, hit your mark, 
do your cues, say your lines. And something like a Marx Brothers movie, like that was vaudeville. And then it moved on to the big screen and they handle it fairly well, primarily because the Marx Brothers themselves, in my opinion, primarily Harpo and uh, Groucho, can hold their own and improv well and they're doing their roles but they feel natural but if you look at everyone else around them they they can fall kind of flat yeah and i think and i wonder if it's just the the adapting it from the stage that hurts it i i don't know if that's if that's a necessarily proven but i think and i think we've briefly touched on it before like i've talked about just like just even the difference in camera shot styles and everything between like even between the fifties into the seventies, just how different they could be. It really did feel like they were just filming stage plays for a long time versus then and you can definitely see it in the 85 version films really kind of came into their own as their own art medium. So they were able to figure out, okay, we can have these deeper, closer in shots. We can have these situations that are very chaotic and can actually bring energy to the scene rather than just, needing to have more people on stage or having more loud noises or shaking the camera more. It's like, we can actually have the situation come off as crazy. And that's sort of like, you know, in 85, there's the moments when he's walking through like the department stores and the hotels and everything. And just all these people around him just, and I mentioned it before, eighties films can do chaotic scenes perfectly. Like this, I, I, my, I think my go-to example has always been the, um, the trade floor scene in trading places, just the absolute madness <laughs> of the situation. It's like how they're able to perfectly portray it. And it just, you can't, you don't get that as much in older films just because they really hadn't been able to kind of move past the idea that, okay, all grand presentation acts like this have to be basically just plays. They could actually be their own thing. Definitely. And I mean, not to mention, I think it, it also works pretty well in the eight, in eighties movies because you see it in an eighties film and the 1980s are so defined by like the wall street businessman type corporate structure. Oh yeah. Like the, the age of the yuppie. Exactly. So you can definitely see this sort of madcap. Everyone's crowding around walking through a store or a hotel and there's all these people. I don't know. It just feels right. Yeah. It just like, it feels like the eighties just were naturally more chaotic. Yeah. Everyone was always having to go someplace. Yep. Plus, you know, the imminent threat of nuclear war probably didn't help. Oh, definitely. We got to go to those places fast. (laughs) We we might get hit by ICBMs before we get to McDonald's. Today might be our last day to get a McDouble. (laughs) versus nowadays it's just kind of more tinged by like man everything just kind of sucks it's chaotic but it's like we've gotten tired of the chaos true and we've also kind of not to derail the podcast completely but yeah uh, we have gotten to the point where those things don't impress us anymore you have a massive crowd shot with millions of people running on a street while like a ufo sails through the sky and it's like okay i get it yeah, which it's weird. I I really don't know what it was about the 80s that they were able to capture it perfectly, but I'll still see movies now. I'll see movies nowadays that try to have these big dramatic shots and everything, and they just don't do it. But I'll watch Independence Day again or, you know, Trading Places again, and it recaptures it all over again because it really, I don't know what it is. I'm just like, okay, yeah, this is 
fast and exciting versus I watch something nowadays is like this feels very muted by comparison. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's because I think it's because it's too perfect. I think because like in order to have something be chaotic, it actually filming it had to seem even chaotic. <laughs> yeah, you can put yourself in the mind space of that, and it's like, well, chaos is happening on stream screen. How well do you think they manage that chaos? They probably didn't manage it very well. Yeah. That's actually probably why I like a lot of Chris Nolan's films, because he actually, so many of his things, he just, he is dedicated to doing practical effects, so you can actually feel the shots that they're going on. Mm-hmm. That's good. I buy that. But, but you, but yeah. you actually, <laughs> sorry. But, but yeah, but like, back to it. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned Independence Day, uh, I don't remember when that came out, like, 94, 95? Uh, yeah, like, early 90s. Yeah, and there was a remake a couple years ago. Did you see the remake? Or not the uh, remake, it's like a sequel. Oh, uh, yeah, the overdue sequel. Uh, I've seen bits and pieces. It's not good. <laughs> if we do <laughs> an episode say, on it, if we do an episode on it, it's going to be very one-sided. I was going to say, maybe that'd be interesting to look at in the future because you specifically brought it up for its crowd stuff. I wonder how they compare specifically in, in things like that, like crowd shots or chaos, how, how they compare, so... We've we've talked about movies that have been like majority CG in the past. This one is so much CG. <laughs> it's, mm. it's just it's really not worth it at a certain point. Look forward to an Independence Day podcast. Uh, cool. At some point in the future, maybe next Fourth of July or something. I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, I uh, I I think the eighty-five version is able to handle stuff like that better. Just like you said, the forty-five one, honestly, as a whole, I don't think it has much going for it. I don't think any of the actors are particularly particularly terrible, but it feels pretty stilted. There isn't as much humor as I would like from a comedy, even from movies of that time. And I've watched plenty from that time that are enjoyable and do make me laugh. So yeah, I, I don't think it's a generational thing necessarily. And uh, it's not kind of women <laughs> at all. No, uh, yeah, no. Like even by the times, it was a little bit kind of weird. We didn't even touch on the fact that uh, I, I didn't bring it up necessarily in the synopsis, but uh, <laughs> what, what is uh, her name? Peggy has had it with Brewster. So she goes home to her mother and Ellis Brewster, she's not going on this cruise trip he has planned. And then her mother's like, oh, you're so independent, so much smarter than I was. I stuck with it with your father, and I regretted it. Uh, but you're independent. Being lonely isn't so bad. And she immediately is like, I have to go on the cruise trip and force him to love me. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, it's like, the, it, I hate it whenever movies try to pull the spinster fucking thing. It's like, oh, an independent woman is nothing if it, like, will only ever become a lonely woman. It's like, fucking shut up. <laughs> you have to have someone else in your life to define you. Yeah, it's like, fucking Jesus, people. Drop drop the Oedipus complex or whatever the hell. Yep, and that is definitely kind of a thing of the times, but I don't... I don't know, by 45... Yeah, like, especially given that just after the war, like, the position of women was actually pretty well high. <laughs> yeah. Like, there was the mindset of, like, women as subservient wouldn't really come around in, in its whole, as in a, as a whole until, like, the late 40s into the 50s. But, like, like as the idea of the housewife became a thing. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just kind of... It feels weird in this. Like, it, it it's the kind of situation it's like, 
um, like, you know, it's like someone says, like, oh, someone was, like, racist, but they were racist for their times. But then you look back on it, and they're like, oh, no, that's actually really bad. <laughs> it's like, it, it's, HK, it's HP Lovecrafting it, but for women. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that that, I don't know, I guess that wasn't much better. Because, like you said, they, uh, it was in a slightly better place. They contributed to the war and everything. But then, you know, yeah. from the 50s and the 60s, we start getting those black and white family sitcoms, you know, uh, a la the Donna Reed show where it's like mother knows best, keep a tidy house. So, uh, yeah. it kind of fell back a bit. So maybe it's not so. Yeah. It was a pretty hard turn. You can even yeah. see in like advertising and everything. It went straight up into here's the thing for you to make your life easier in the workplace, in the kitchen, ladies. Now use it all the time in order to make your t- life actually harder in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, it's kind of disgusting whenever you look back on all of it. Your husband will be happy. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that that definitely is a, a black mark in, in on the 45's version. What do you like about the 45 version? I, 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 you know, I do have one thing that I did like. I mean, I'm, you know, man, I'm honestly not too sure. Like, I think. I wanted to try and say I think Brewster is an okay character, but I even mentioned it before. It, it just seems he just seems all over the place as a character. I thought in the beginning he'd kind of end up being a more upstanding guy, but as it went on with all the, and I'm sure that's meant to be kind of the point with the whole premise. But at the same time, even when he's first getting the money, he seems kind of skeevy. It's like at first he's about to walk right out the door when they say he can't get married. It's like okay, cool, this dude's gonna have some honor to him. But then I realized, oh, wait, there's going to be an actual movie. He's going to completely turn this around. Um, and right. as he turned it back around, I was like, I just don't like him as a dude. It's like, you know, it's like he was so dedicated. He was so dedicated to his wife-to-be and then just kind of immediately shunted her for this whole situation. I kind of thought in the end he wasn't going to get the money at all when he realized I, he realizes he doesn't need the money to be happy. It's like it was actually trying to play up the idea of money can't buy you happiness kind of thing in its actual form, not just, hey, even if you're impoverished, you shouldn't have money. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> I was actually surprised in both cases that uh, I mean, I'm not familiar with the original play, so I or book or whatever. So I imagine that it's the same all around, but I didn't expect them to get, you know, all of the money. In yeah. either case, and, and and I'm used to like the happy Hollywood ending. Everyone's happy, but especially with the '85 version, I I expected it to be like, oh, okay, he didn't make it in time. He almost did, but he got the woman. He knows what's important. Uh, something happens with baseball, and he's happy again. Just because of the time frame and the money involved, if it was like the one million to eight million dollar ratio we were dealing with in the 45 version then it's like oh okay i can see richard Pryor winning and getting that money but 300 million dollars to have a character win that as the end of your movie yeah it's like the end of Gre- seemed, ooh. it kind of feels like it like how at the end of greece like where you expected like oh she's gonna win him <laughs> over and everything's gonna be fine with her how she is but it's like no she just totally totally turns into like this bimbo character it's like what the hell that's the moral <laughs> and then the car flies away i was literally stunned i was like what what? What is happening? What? Why are we doing this? Why am I here? What, what did I just watch this for? I mean, the, the musical was kind of goofy. I was not expecting a flying car. Yeah. I, <laughs> the, this, the, like, I know it's meant to be dramatic and stuff, but like, we just went full chitty chitty bang bang. I am not cool with this. 
<laughs> that's it, this is completely tangential, and I'm waffling at this point. I know, but it's just one last thing: is that I've seen just jokes online of you know people making their own Netflix uh, collections. One of the collections they had was movies that end with them just fucking flying off in the end. It has Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Grease, and Birdman. <laughs> <laughs> the Flyaway Collection. Yeah, it's just it was the funniest thing. But yeah. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I was leading it for you a bit with the 45 one to talk about sort of what you liked, if anything. Yes. Uh, I don't know if I can really think of anything, man. Like, <laughs> there are individual moments that are funny, but, like, I can't really say there's anything as a whole that I could say. I was like, yeah, this is worth watching it for. Where that the 85 one didn't do exponentially better, had better scene, like, it, it had better shot composition, it had better acting it had better situations that really went along with the absurdity of the premise it's like okay yeah no this whole thing is crazy that this uncle has to set up this ridiculous game so let's just go balls to the wall with it let's like he buys the yankees he has all these other things going on it's like what he buys a stamp <laughs> it's like <laughs> what is happening <laughs> this is crazy toad <laughs> this is but absurd I, <laughs> I will say like I mentioned Eddie Anderson to death, so I won't anymore. That's definitely something I liked about the 45 one. But I think the standout actual moment that I did like in the movie is he's he's kind of having a breakdown in his office. And Eddie Anderson is, has like a glass to the door and is like spying on him. Yeah. And he has sort of a psychotic break and he starts hallucinating that this uh, this moon flyer he has is talking to him. Yeah, um, and it's a little it, weird. And it's fully... The moon is animated as cartoons in the past, you know, in that style, obviously, and voiced. And I, I don't know, just seeing that in a movie back then, that's not all that common. I thought yeah. that was really, really interesting and really fun to look at. It's like, what is this Disney shit? <laughs> and, and you know what? I was actually curious about... I was like... Okay, first of all, I want to know who voiced the moon, and I want to know what studio animated it. I cannot find that information anywhere. I searched for maybe 30 minutes. I'd like to do a deeper dive. The one thing I was able to find in that amount of time was an animation blog spot where someone posted like a link to the YouTube clip of that scene. And they're <laughs> like, the, the voice actor kind of sounds like this person who was the big bad wolf and whatever. I'm not sure who animated it. Anybody have any thoughts? And there was like one reply in the comments is like, I have no idea. Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I was like, that's helpful. Yeah. Thanks buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. 1940s films, not properly crediting people. I know. It's which I say infuriating. that, which I say that, but as if, you know, modern credit real roles aren't becoming basically entire episodes on their own at this point, but still like, it's good to have that. Yeah, you see a movie with a two and a half hour time <laughs> time stamp on like Amazon and you get to two hours fifteen minutes and the movie's over. Yep. You're like, oh yep, here come the credits. And I, I believe everyone should be credited, don't get me wrong. Oh yeah, no, like I'm not meaning to say that. But just like when it's something that unique part of the film, why would you not give some level of accreditation for it? That should be at the t near the top. I would put that segment like right after the cast list. Yeah, you put that on the fucking movie cover. <laughs> like it's like the you know um, little shop of horrors thing having you know 
Jack Nicholson on the front. It's like he barely had anything to do with it, but he was the <laughs> most interesting bit in a lot of ways. And people know him now, so if you get the DVD, he's he, he may not even he may not be in the art on the front, but he's definitely like the name on the front. Yeah, just because it's like, well, Jack Nicholson's in this. Everybody knows Jack Nicholson. You want to sell DVDs, don't you? <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't feature <laughs> Bill Murray more on the cover of the new one. Oh, the new Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, uh, I think I guess it's because past that time, like Rick Moranis and I mean Vincent Gardino was already an established character actor and John Candy, yeah. so I guess there were a bunch of people in it they could rely on, as opposed to the people in the Roger Corman version, which they they got around. Dick Miller's in there, you know. Yeah, that's <laughs> nice. But Jack Nicholson, I mean, definitely broke away and became bigger than all of them. So yeah, it's like, man, what, <laughs> talk about like, you know, aim for the star, like aim for the moon, land in the stars. This is more like aim for the parking lot and end up in orbit. Yeah, you 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 jump pretty far. <laughs> yeah. Uh, God, but so yeah, uh, we are waffling have... a lot now. <laughs> Well, I was about to say, do you have any final thoughts on anything? I think we have a consensus this time. Yeah, it's yeah, like obviously the eighty-five version is the the superior one, just in every aspect. And honestly, I might watch it again. It's actually pretty funny. That um, it was pretty I enjoyable. I honestly did not expect myself to enjoy it as much as I did. It's not like you know, like set the world on fire for me. But I was like, yeah, if I see this again, yeah, sure, I'll I'll watch it again. It's interesting enough. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, no. Like uh, otherwise, the forty-five one. It's just there's not much going on. Like, I, and the fact that I, I was glad that it was only an hour and twenty, and so I was just kind of like, okay, that's over and done with, and just kind of moved right the fuck along. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree. I think the eighty-five one is consistently funnier as a comedy. Yeah. I think it's better and it has more interesting elements. It, to it i'm not the biggest fan of all the baseball stuff in it and that's not even because i'm not a baseball fan i just think that it reaches a point where it starts detracting from the movie especially yeah. near the end with the game but it's not horrible and it, there are definitely worse subplots that you could have put in there i'm um, willing to bet if i went back and watched the trailer for this movie a solid 30 seconds of that trailer is going to feature baseball and I'm all but certain that's the only reason baseball is so pro- it has such a prominent role. It's just to drag people in. Because, <laughs> like, people see, like, oh, the, he's wearing a Cubs c- uniform. Or, like, oh, he's going against the Yankees. Like, that's crazy. I'm going to watch that. Don't yeah. <laughs> zoom in on a dumb face. That'd be like if a movie trailer featured, like, the Broncos or something nowadays. If the Are the Broncos a good one? I don't know. Fucking I don't know. Don't, like, oh, don't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but, but yeah, I think it's better. It was nice to get exposure to Richard Pryor. I've heard some of his stand-up before. Um, but this is, this is my first, I guess, real exposure to him in film, I think. Yeah. Because I, I see, I know that he was like, you know, like J- Martin and Lewis. It was, uh, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder for a long time. They were the duo in a ton of films, like See No Evil, Hear No Evil, and whatever that that last one was. Uh, I'm forgetting the names of them. But yeah, so I've seen like the posters for all of those, and I guess I saw Superman three, <laughs> and he's a side character in that. But but this was my this was the first like oh this is you know Richard Pryor is in the movie. 
and as the main so, character. Exactly. So, you know, that was some good, uh, that was some good exposure to that, I think. Uh, yeah. Very, Branching very out. enjoyable. Yeah. So, uh, pretty, pretty I, much I, all, I, all there is to say, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> nothing more to be said. But, uh, so do you have any suggestions that you would like to pop off? Well, I mean, I definitely said Trading Places before, which, like, if you haven't seen that, that's a fantastic movie. Um, obviously, it's Dan Acker and Andy Murphy at their peak, so it's, it's hard to beat it. Um, as far as 45 films, I mean, like, again, we had watched Mad Mad World. That one was a pretty good comparison for the 45. Beyond that, I'm not too sure. There aren't a whole lot of big, like, co- big a, a lot of movies that you can really reference to back to this. Um, yeah, financial comedies, it definitely seems like there's more of them in the 80s. I mean, again, again with Trading Places, I'm sure there are more that I can think of. The Money Pit? The Money, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't know that one. Um, <laughs> if you want money and baseball, for but not a comedy, there's Moneyball. Oh yeah, yeah that, um, it was about. I can't remember. It's about some deal with like the Cleveland Browns or some bullshit. I don't know. I feel like I saw that it was Brad Pitt in there. Yeah, it was Brad, yeah, Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I did see that. It's like it's like it was some like sports gamble thing where they were basing they were actually building a baseball team based on statistics rather than like necessarily like fame of each player and that sort of thing. All right. Something ridiculous. I don't know. It's sports. I, I, I'm not even going to pretend like I understand sports even slightly more than just referential. No need. This this is a safe a safe place. If you've come here for your sports talk, you have. I my friend, first of all, seek help. I think you 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 have a problem. Second of all, why? <laughs> yeah, sports center is down the hall and to the left, sir. <laughs> I like the idea that we're just in the same building as Sports Center, but we're like in like a utility basement. I'll go. I'll go down and grab someone real quick. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't. They don't even know we're in here. We don't. We're not even employees of the building. We just found a vacant space. Shh! They're coming. Oh God! I can hear the footsteps. <laughs> quick! Give your suggestions. Oh, um. So I, I'm kind of in the same space. Don't really. I can't really think of anything for the 45 comparison wise. Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I, I've been doing this recently either with actors or directors. So I'm going to pull this off with the director of the 85 version, Walter Hill. Oh. Uh, he's directed and produced a lot of stuff. I would say the standouts for me personally, he directed uh, The Warriors, which I think is a great fun movie. Uh, it's about uh, gangs. Huh. Oh, oh, The Warriors. Yeah. For a second, I was like, I was, I was trying to remember that for a second. I was like, yeah, yeah. That seems he, familiar. he directed that. And that's a lot. That's a lot of. Uh, fun. It's very yeah. thrilling. Fun fact about that: it's actually based off of an ancient Greek story. Future episode. <laughs> I mean, it's not a movie, so we wouldn't be able to. <laughs> we'll go back in time and see it performed at the Parthenon or something. The but, Parthenon. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> There's a few things with that, but let's let's move right along. In the Colosseum where the Greeks played. <laughs> Anyways. But also uh, a show that I have laud- lauded constantly <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, Walter Hill did direct three episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is sort of so-so. Uh, but he did direct the first episode, The Man Who Was Death. And he did an episode in season two, which I it's in literally in my top five, called Cutting Cards. 
uh, which there isn't even really any horror to it. It's it's just there's these two gamblers that hate each other. They're notorious gamblers. They hate each other. They try to avoid each other, but they both show up at the same casino. And the entire episode is them doing increasingly worse and worse bets to the point where they're like lopping fingers off of others hand the other person's hand in a poker game and stuff like that and it's just it's just the extreme hatred these two men have for each other and where it it ends up taking them huh. uh, and it's a great episode of the show and Walter Hill directed it so uh go check those things out I say alrighty <clears throat> so I will uh I guess I'll do all the socials this time uh please do time. as you do every time <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, I, now I can't, I I can't read that shit off <laughs> no it's okay if i had them written down i could send it to you but i do it off the top of my head baby Fair enough. so uh add it remade on twitter for updates about the show and possibly remake news if any ha- more happens in the future i've kept my eye out we getting a lot of news about video game remakes but nothing in the movie side so yeah uh <laughs> we're, we're gonna have to uh, Actually, no, I was about to say, we got to start doing a game cast, but you know what? There's so many of those, I'd rather sell my soul. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's going to want to. We'll do, we'll do that for ourselves and then not post it. Yay. Uh, we won't even record it. So, yeah, that's at it remade on Twitter. Uh, they remade it at gmail.com is the email. Send us suggestions to better or worsen the show, uh, especially if you have any ideas for future episodes of the podcast. I, I mentioned this on a previous episode. I just forgot to this time. I would like to say uh, this episode, Brewster's Millions, was actually an idea pitched to me uh, at some point near the end of the year last year by a, a friend, uh, sort of a mutual friend. You know him, at least. All right. uh, so that's where this one came from. I know I mentioned it before, but I didn't want to spoil the episode, so I didn't say what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what that was. So, yeah, uh, pitch ideas and uh, especially if there's something that I, I didn't know was a remake. Uh, those yeah, will definitely get... be the first in the first to go in. We, we get surprised by that. Uh, pretty consistently for me, at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, go ahead at they remade it on uh, Instagram. I almost said Pinterest. I'm not on Pinterest. We're not <laughs> yeah. on Pinterest. Yeah, I don't know how, we, how that would work. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, for the Instagram page, I have been slow to post anything on that. I've been working. I know I've said that multiple times. I've been working on more stuff. I just want to get it looking right up to my standards. Uh, and then I'll start posting some of that stuff again uh, because I, I was having fun with that. And uh, go ahead and subscribe and listen on any of your podcasting platforms. This pa- past week, I actually went through, found a list of like 60 service podcast services, went through and I was like, okay, are we on this? Are we on this? We're not on this. So let's get on that. Woo. And I think it's safe to say we're on almost every podcasting platform that is officially out there right now you cannot get rid of us <laughs> nope there's just a couple that i couldn't do because we didn't fit into their criteria for a show like oh is your show specifically for educating uh hispanic americans i'm like i don't think i should bother applying to this one yeah <laughs> i don't think we've even done a hispanic film to, to my knowledge we gotta I get on that seen- yeah, I haven't seen any, but I'll, I'll look into it. We need to look into a couple things uh, that yeah. we mentioned this sh- time around. Yeah, uh, I'm sure there's something. Definitely. But yeah, uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spree- uh, Podbay, Podbean, all those sorts of things. Go ahead and rate, comment, review, share, 
do whatever you want. Pull people in, infect them. This is like uh, Invasion of the Pod People or uh, one of us. One the of stuff. us. Yes, freaks. All all of those <laughs> delightful classics. Uh, and that is it. <laughs> Just join the great and powerful cult of they remade it. Okay, okay, maybe not powerful. <laughs> and and okay, the okay and middling strength cult of they remade it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna think on that cult thing. Yeah, it's less cult and more just kind of like a, a fan group at this point, which I'm sure lots of cults have claimed to be. Mm. This is a sticky situation you got us into. Yeah, let's give Jared Leto, Leto a call. Let's see what he has to say about it. No. <laughs> On that note, I am, as always, I am your host, Stuart. And I am your host, Jacob, who is a professional mimic that repeats everything you say. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! I get that. I oh get yeah! That oh yeah! I get. I get that reference. <laughs> Tool. Tool. I'm a dick. I'm done. <laughs> oh dang it! <laughs> All right. Good night. Good night. Eugene. Oh, you tell him it was your idea. All right, I got some good news and some bad news for you. Well, tell him the bad news first. All right, all right, all right. Here's the bad news. I did exactly what you wanted me to do. I got rid of all your iceberg stocks. That's great. That's the bad news. <laughs> you ready for the good news? Yeah. Okay, here it comes. I took Eugene's advice, all right? Admittedly, without you knowing, I used the corporate name. I hope you don't mind. No. I made no. a couple investments for you. That's, and that's okay. What did I buy? I bought a commodity thing, and I bought uh, an oil well thing. He just and I got... made you $10 million. $10 million! Damn it! I'm right back where I started, damn it! <laughs>